Are you ready to bring your real estate game to the next level? My name is James Prendamano. I'm the CEO and founder of Pre-Real. And over the past 25 years, I've closed over a billion dollars in transactional real estate. Each week, I'm meeting with outstanding investors, high-performing individuals, and visionaries operating in the real estate space. These are the people that are actually out there in the real estate game right now getting it done. This podcast aims at bringing anyone's game to the next level. This is the Pre-Real Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Pre-Real Podcast. We're joined today by Mandy McAllister, also known as the Mindset Ninja. Uh, Mandy is the managing member of Good Fortune Capital. And folks, um, I, I want you to really pay close attention today. Uh, we're really, really fortunate to, to be able to have Mandy come on and, and share her story today. She's got some amazing advice, some great tools, some of which I've personally used, and I'm really excited to jump in. Mandy, thank you so much for the time today. Ah, oh, so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. No, uh, absolutely our pleasure. So why don't we we start just by giving the audience a, a little bit of, of your background. So many people talk about financial freedom today. Uh, you've come up with a, a pretty interesting way to define it. And she's got an amazing tool, folks, that we'll talk about in defining what financial freedom is. Um, and, then, and then we can get into the whole investing good stuff, right? The deal stuff. <laughs> all of the things. We'll get yeah. into all of the things. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm Manny McAllister. I grew up a farm kid, had a conversation at 19 that made me think, oh my gosh, I, I need to be a real estate investor because a friend explained she owned the property and rented it to our friends. And I realized, oh my God, you get to keep that money. That's the best <laughs> idea I've ever heard in my whole life, right? But I didn't buy anything with the express purpose of being an investment until I was 35 year, years old. So that was a really long time of just thinking and wondering, oh, this is for other people. You know, they're, they eat, pray, love their way through life. And I'm, I'm just the, the girl who gets the straight A's and gets the job she's supposed to and buys the big house and whatever. Right. Uh, and then I realized, you know, after I bought that first fourplex that I had intended to be basically my kid's uh, college fund, because if you, I bought it on a 15 year loan, if I can then pay it off in that time, put a new loan on, on it, that chunk of cash becomes a tax-free college fund. That was the original plan, but oh my God, I had an extra thousand dollars cash flow coming in every month. Right. So I realized at some point that could just be a math problem that I could just figure out what it costs me to live. And if I had a steady flow of cash coming in that was beyond those needs, then I got to make a lot of different life decisions that I wasn't afforded without uh, setting those things up. So that's kind of how I got bit by the bug. So do you, again, we, we hear uh, all the time, financial freedom, financial freedom. Can, can you walk the audience through just a couple of minutes on the calculator that sure. you've put together? Uh, folks, it's it's one of those things that when you look at, you go, oh, you know, when I, when I have time, I'll, 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 I'll get it together. But so many of us talk in almost a glib way about, I want financial freedom, but what does that actually mean? And, and Mandy has an amazing tool that if it's okay, Mandy, we'd like to share that uh, in the links when we promote it. it. It's really helped to define for me exactly what financial freedom would look like. But if you would, a few minutes on, on the calculator. Sure. I, I totally agree with you. We say financial freedom. It's this nebulous term like, you know, uh, nirvana, 
right? So uh, what does that exactly mean? And actually, you know, I kind of went all the way down the uh, financial independence rabbit hole. I, I did a ton of uh, seminars, read a bunch of books. And, you know, Tony Robbins has this uh, idea of that there's a bunch of different levels of financial freedom. And that resonated so much to me. So I used basically that concept to back into what would those different levels of financial freedom be in my life as a real estate investor? Because there is some level of freedom if you just have your mortgage and uh, food and health insurance paid for for the month. And I can tell you with absolute certainty that a personal freedom and power comes from knowing those things are covered because I was faced with a, a boss basically telling me to do something that was morally not okay in order to grow my business. And I, I knew I could say no because I wasn't scared as a single mom to lose my job because I knew that I would be able to pay my mortgage. I knew that I'd feed my kid, it'd be ramen, but we would eat and we would live, you know? So I'm here to tell you knowing like step one is covered and then knowing that you have those things covered plus some fun stuff. And then a huge extra leap of freedom comes when everything you spend on an average month is covered. And I, I use a, a tool that's free called mint.com to estimate that. And then that plus a buffer means that's really what I wanted to see to quit my job. Are my bills covered with passive income plus call it a 20, 25% buffer. And then that's when I chose to, you know, quote unquote, quote, retire from my day job about five months ago. And then I'm not finished yet. I, I want a jet membership. I want a stupid like luxury car. So, you know, the building of my uh, passive income to help reach those kind of ultimate uh, uh, financial freedom, I, I'm still working towards that. So folks, uh, the calculator, it's basically a, a series of Excel sheets that has different levels, as, as Mandy had touched on. It'll break out for you uh, just the, the core essentials, and then there's uh, an allowance for um, how much you want to be able to spend on clothes a month and, and dining out and so on. And then, uh, as she had said, mint.com gives you a number you plug in. And then it's got the aspirational stuff. Um, you know, if you want a, a, a van with a driver and you want a, a partial uh, membership or you, you want to own a jet, it has the ability to plug those numbers in. And then it breaks out for you, which I thought was so neat. Uh, at $100 a door, at $150 a door, at $200 a door, and it will tell you the range that you need to be in, how many doors you need to have under ownership in order to achieve those different levels of financial freedom. And for me, um, that was super motivating. Um, you know, we're, we're at a point where we've, we've invested in, and we've been blessed over the last decade and a half or so um, on a number of different units from shopping centers, uh, not as much multifamily. We're starting to, to get into more multifamily now as inflation becomes more of a reality and less of a talking point. Uh, but it was really great to see. Uh, I'm a gold person. And for me to be able to see those different defined targets uh, is something I'm going to print out and I'm going to put it right up on my board. So it's it right, right up there. There you go. There you go. So, um, you know, I guess that kind of feeds into the next piece I wanted to touch on with you, Mandy, is mindset. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what does mindset mean to you? I feel like that's another kind of nebulous thing that gets thrown around a lot. And I, uh, you know, 
mindset for goals, just to kind of tie a little bow on what we were just talking about. For me, the more truth that you can put to any problem, the easier it is to attack that problem. So if I know that, oh my gosh, I thought I needed $15,000 to leave my job. All I needed was eight that I put truth to it so I could solve the problem easier. So knowing exactly whatever North star I'm running at is the easiest mindset solution on anything. I also feel like, um, you know, especially, especially women, analysis paralysis and overcoming fear is a really big thing. You know, HP did this study that, you know, for people going for promotions, if a man was going to go for a promotion, he needed to feel that he met about 50 or 60% of all the bullet points for that new job. Women needed to feel like they met 100% of them. So really figuring out how to overcome that fear to take that calculated risk that is multifamily investing, that is investing in anything is so incredibly important. Like, look at my story. I went from 19 to 35, absolutely no motion. So I'll share with you kind of my, my primary, like my favorite kind of mindset hack, if you don't mind. Um, it, I was reading a lot of stoic philosophy at the time I was trying to take a leap from like six ish, 10 ish units, like the small multis in that area up to the 50, up to the agency debt type stuff, which is really where I wanted to be. But that was a huge leap to me. And I was scared to death because I was taking on other people's money. And I realized oh my gosh, the stoic philosophy principle of I just need to get incredibly okay with the downside. If I just, not that the pipes are going to break or that something's, you know, somebody's going to drive through a fence because that really happened. But the what is the absolute worst case scenario? And I realized that this this break even point was uh, we can have an economic break even point of 46%. We can have almost half of it not paying for, for the first like eight years and we'd be able to pay our, our bills and keep that deal, right? So that got me so comfortable with that deal. It seemed like a no brainer at that point. So if you can quantify the absolute worst case scenario and mitigate that risk, you're likely gonna feel better about moving forward. So wh- where where do you start, right? Where, where do folks begin in, in trying to, to get their head in the right place to take these leaps. I mean, I see so many folks that are trading their nine to fives in now, um, and some of which I think are going to have absolutely amazing success. But I think that there's also a, a fair share of folks that are not quite measuring what the other side of the tracks really looks like uh, and the sacrifice and uh, all of the things that comes along with being uh, in a position where you're striving for financial independence, where, where do you, I know for me, mindset has changed my game completely over the last two years. Uh, I was in a position and I was, while we had a lot of growth in the company, um, there wasn't much growth beyond that. And mm-hmm. it, it took, actually, it was the podcast that helped me break free and, and start moving to the next level. Are there any, any books or any, any uh, references you can point to that are good places for people to start as they explore their why and they start to explore uh, what the mindset really means for the individual? Yeah. So um, I did a whole list on this and I'll I'll give you that list for the notes too. But one that's right off the top of my head and it's a little bit more advanced. It's not the, it's not a very first one, but if you're kind of, you've been doing all the right things and you need to figure out like, what is the next 
step for you, look up the art of the impossible. This is, um, you know, the whole idea of Malcolm Gladwell's idea of you need 10,000 hours to be an expert. The idea behind this is if you're in flow, if you're doing the absolute right things in this really deeper work state, you're, you're, you don't maybe need all of that time. You can get there far more quickly. And this art of the impossible has a ton of actionable ideas on how to get into, uh, into flow. And I'll, I'll say, I want to say one thing about this financial freedom and leaving your day job thing. I'm a single mom of a five-year-old. It's all, it's all me. So like, I, I'm also super empathetic of guys who have a stay-at-home wife and three kids and like that idea too, like my palm sweat thinking about it. So, you know, I kind of came up in this multifamily world with people that were looking for syndications. And, you know, for instance, the last uh, syndication I was a part of on the general partnership side, I raised a million dollars. I did a ton of like due diligence. I'm on the calls. I'm sending out news. I'm doing all of the things as the general partner. My ownership percentage is 1.96%. That is a thing that no one really talks about if you're targeting syndication. So I call myself an equity hog and buy stuff that's just my own. Think about that, that 104 units, 1.96% of that, that's a duplex, bro right? Like how much benefit am I getting out of it? So the way those guys were looking to leave their jobs, oh, I get this acquisition fee and that disposition fee. Awesome. All I got to do is four deals a year. Oh my God, you have to do four deals a year. What if there's not four doable deals? How are you going to feed your kids? So that is how that calculator was born. I wanted the floor of income before I went on to do anything else. So premeditated planning with that buffer is really going to help ease a lot of that pain. So let's talk about that for a minute, because mm -hmm. it's something that a lot of people are not talking about, right? So uh, you see <laughs> these Instagram investors and and a lot of them are wildly successful. Don't get me wrong. But there mm -hmm. is another side of the business where I own 3,000 units, I own 5,000 units, I own 8,000 units. But if you dig into it, as you're very astutely pointing out, and a lot of people shy away from this, if you own 1% or 2% of those units, it's not quite the same. So as you're getting involved in these, uh, these ventures, folks, you need to really decide first and foremost, are you, a, are you a deal junkie? Are you someone that really profoundly understands and has experience in the markets where you're going to be analyzing the deal because you're going to be taking other people's money? right? You're going to be taking in money if you're on the GP side <clears throat> and you're going to be running these deals. Uh, what does that GP side look like? And what percentage of the deal are you owning? Uh, and, and another thing, Mandy, that people don't, don't talk about all the time is everybody looks, looks great on the wedding day, but as time wears on and, and different partners have different roles and those partners are not quite carrying their weight in those roles. It can be, I, I've seen some tough situations, right? Where, where the GPs look great day one. And, and as you get further and further into the deal, things don't look so great. So uh, I'm guessing what you've done is you've moved away from those types of deals and you're taking significant chunks of equity in, in the deals that you're doing now. So I'm lucky enough that I have, uh, you know, 
some equity to play around with. As a medical device sales rep, I made a good living and I set a ton of that money aside. So basically the formula of this investing game is do you have dollars or do you have time? And if you're lucky enough to have both and want to get your hands dirty, you can command a larger percentage ownership of these deals. So the the very best deals I've done over the last couple of years have been me and just a couple of guys you know, and we own them together with a longer term horizon. Like I feel like you talked about horizon, uh, inflation being a thing early on. If you haven't Googled M1, if you haven't Googled the money supply that is in our economy now, it is now 8x what it was. Think of what that means. If we are sitting at a table, me and you, James, and there's two Diet Cokes and $2, each Diet Coke is worth a dollar inherently. If poof, now it's $200 is at the table, we're willing to pay way more than $2 for that exact same thing. So what does that mean? If I lock in my my rate, as lo uh, my loan as long as possible, and I just write it out, I'm going to get the yield that I need to get, right? So the longer term horizon that I can get with agreement of three or four people in a joint venture is not something I can necessarily get in a syndication either, because as a syndicator, I'm incentivized to, to you know, buy and sell in a three or a five year time horizon. So I want to lock in as long as possible right now as kind of a hedge for that inflation risk. So that's another thing that so few are talking about, right? We see mm -hmm. pro formas all day long and they're accounting for this incredible upside in rent. Right, they're they're accounting for um, not quite the commensurate level of increase in expenses, which is usually flag number one. Right, uh, 30, 40, 50 percent increases in rent. It reposition. We're going to add washer dryer. We're going to you know all of these wonderful things. And and folks, there is merit to that. There are absolutely a lot of ways to drive dollars out of your units, but that also comes with the other side of it. And we're seeing a lot of pro formas that have wonderful, I mean, the rents are taking off, you know, over the next seven to 10 years, but they're reliant on two or three different liquidity events. And they're not taking advantage of long-term fixed rate debt today. A lot of these deals are three and five year. And I've seen markets where I don't care how good the deal is, you cannot secure new financing for it, period. That that world does exist. And there's almost a whole generation of people that never saw that now. they All they know is low rates and money is available. And if you're not locking in, as Mandy had said, to get to what I say is the other side of the rainbow, there's going to be lean times, folks. And, and if you have to pay a few bucks more today, to lock in for a longer period of time and get through the lean times, believe me, they're coming. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that there's going to be a, a bit of pain in the next couple of years in this industry. When the tide goes out, uh, you're going to see who's been swimming naked, right? And uh, I worry that we are going to see a lot of naked syndicators. Yeah. Um, so, and I, I had a friend send me a pro forma today that it's going to be a ground up build with year one uh, NOI of 300,000. <laughs> so you're going to build and have an NOI of 300,000 in the same year. And then the next year it's 320. Like when, when is this, you know, it's so much pie in the sky, so much like, uh, you know, fancy magic in the numbers is happening that um, the whole generation of syndicators, the whole generation of investors don't know what it looks like to not have things go in our favor. Yeah. 
and uh, there's a lot to be said for being very conservative in these models. And, and I know there's a lot of excitement and folks are, are looking to jump into the game, but, but believe me, they, they don't, these deals don't often play out and that's okay. Right. That's why you work with a professional. That's why you work with people that have experience or, or are really true problem solvers at their core. And they understand how to navigate those waters when things aren't as smooth sailing as we've seen in the past, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I want to take a step back if we can for a moment. You mentioned the farm. Mm -hmm. So uh, could you talk a little bit about the farm? And I, I'm, I'm going somewhere with that. Are you okay? Well, if you need a bale hay or like you want to buy a half a cow, I got you. Don't worry. My dad like still gives me the meat from half a cow for, for Christmas. Uh, <laughs> I, the town is like of 800 people. And our, our closest neighbor was my grandma. And my, my graduating high school class of 26 kids was the same 26 kids I went to kindergarten with. So it was, uh, it was a really cool way to grow up. But my God, did I crave anonymity when I <laughs> hit 17. <laughs> do, do you still enjoy, uh, do you get out onto the farm at all anymore? Do you still enjoy that? Yeah. So my almost six-year-old loves the tractors. And, you know, especially during COVID, it was like, basically our vacation. We could go be in the pool and, you know, not have to wear a mask because we had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of acres around us. So it's, you know, my family's still there. So yeah, I, I do go pretty frequently. So that, that became, um, for me, that was my escape. Um, I ended up buying what was, it wasn't a farm at the time and it still isn't a farm. It's a, a hobby farm, right? We have our goats and our chickens and our pigs and cows, and we just added horses. Uh, but for me, there's something um, really therapeutic about escaping and kind of putting your hands in the dirt and, and running the tractor to the extent that I know how to run a tractor. <laughs> right. But you know, there's something pretty cool about growing the corn and then harvesting it and feeding the animals. So I thought that that was interesting uh, when you mentioned car, uh, a farm in the beginning. So, okay, <laughs> let's, let's talk deals. Um, yes. So you're uh, for, for most folks, they can't get past the, two, three, five, eight unit um, deals, right? Mm -hmm. So so what was it for you that uh, allowed you to take that leap from those smaller units into, as you had mentioned earlier, institutional financing and, and government financing and those, those big HUD deals? What was it for you that allowed you to take that step? You know, number one, so my master's is economics. So the idea of this, you know, hard assets. You know, my first job after grad school was on the floor of the board of trade and I saw guys lose millions in the, the snap of a finger, right? So paper assets kind of had me, gave me the willies for a long time. So this idea of, um, you know, locking in non-recourse agency debt for the long term with a ton of interest only, that's what I was chasing. The kind of the byproduct, the way to get there were the, the cash flowing multifamily assets. So understanding the only way I could get into that better debt 
was by going bigger. Um, one, I took on partners and then two, I did kind of that mindset hack I talked about that. I, I just kind of had to get over myself because if I risk mitigated every way I knew how, and I could really get comfortable if that worst case scenario happened, there was no reason not to do that deal. And now, you know, I'm still doing today. I feel like I talked kind of super hairy dent doom and gloom there for a minute, but you know what? I'm still doing deals all, all the time. I'm just mitigating for that downside risk and knowing that I can live out a business cycle if I need to. So that long-term debt is really the key to everything in terms of my ethos right now. Yeah, w- without a doubt, there's there's deals to be had today. And there, as you had said, when, when the tide washes out, there'll be even more deals to be had at that point. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that we're, we're going to be headed to a climate where uh, not only are investors uh, going to be seeking parachutes, I think that some lending institutions um, are going to find themselves uh, uh, in a position where even performing notes are going to be a challenge as those deposits start to drop. Uh, all of a sudden, banks fall out of charter and they need to get rid of that debt. So I think there's some unique opportunities on the horizon if we keep our powder dry. Um, so w- when, when you're looking for deals now, where are you sourcing your deals? Yeah. You know what? So I have, I have recently left my W2, like I mentioned, and my investing ethos overall is that the very best like safety deposit box for long-term wealth growth that also has, you know, uh, tax benefits, uh, you know, the best loan associated with it. That is multifamily real estate, right? For the long-term, but you also kind of need an engine of cash flow. So I was in search of that basically. So what can I do that's going to bring on faster cash flow than the multifamily stuff? Cause it's good. But if you think about it, you know, if I'm buying it a four cap, that's basically, you know, 25 X mm-hmm. I'm paying for that dollar, right? If you're buying a small business, you can buy a laundromat at like two, X for that dollar. So I kind of went down that rabbit hole and ended up kind of staying in my lane and am, I'm under contract for a motel that is Congrats. underperforming. I uh, thank you. It's uh, underperforming on a lake that was just listed on MLS in a you know town in uh, Wisconsin. So it's 18 units and we're, you know, I partnered with an Airbnb specialist and we're going to run it from afar, like Airbnb in this town that we know needs tourism, because that is a way faster cash flow generator and still in the multifamily vein. In terms of sourcing long term uh, deals, you know, it, you got to kiss a lot of frogs, man. Like I'm, I'm sticking to it that if I can get cash on cash to 10% to double digits by year two in an agency loan in a Midwestern market, I'm doing that deal. And I say that to everybody I can get my hands on uh, because, you know, you find that deal, I'll figure out a way for us to be joint venture partners on it. So um, currently kissing a lot of frogs in the multifamily space. So um, just to slow it down for a moment, but what, <laughs> What Mandy is referencing, and, and uh, this is something we had talked about a few years ago with the Opportunity Zone, uh, we thought that there would be a neat opportunity to uh, allocate some of those funds into businesses that were located in the zones. There's a lot of, of, of neat uh, benefits, deferred gains and, and tax-free gains downstream if you hold it for 10 years with a bunch of other considerations. But we also felt that human capital uh, was a place we were interested in investing. And by that, I mean in businesses. Um, so to turn a quicker buck and, and not have such a long life cycle to get that initial outlay back, you're 
acquiring businesses, hotels, a great example. Any concerns uh, as you vet these deals with just kind of the overall feel and shift that we've seen? There's been well-documented issues mm -hmm. uh, getting folks back to work. Um, any, any concerns with, with that as you're vetting these deals? So one of the big pieces of why I loved this motel so much is I feel like there's risk mitigation and just paying less, right? So we got an 18 unit motel for $350,000, right? Wow. So my, my break even point on occupancy is like 9%. So yes, I have concerns. However, you know, if I'm a mom that can't, you know, if I have to start tending bar instead of selling stuff, right, then I'm going to still want to take my six-year-old on a vacation and we're not going to go to Disneyland. We're going to go to the lake. So I feel like there's an inherent risk mitigation there too, because I like understanding kind of the, the lake vibe that that's where you go as a cheaper vacation. Um, I feel like this has a lot of downside mitigation for a lot of reasons. And the Airbnb model, is that mitigating employee count for you on the other side? Yeah. Exactly. It is. Yep. And that, so this woman that she manages uh, nationwide, she she's building companies around this. She's an absolute rock star when it comes to um, making revenues like amplified with Airbnb. So, you know, uh, you send me a message, I'll send you her name. Um, actually, why not? Julie Gates. She's wonderful. Sid was here. She's my business partner in this. Uh, I don't know if she's going to like that. I plugged her, but it did. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, I, I'm bringing on the biggest expert of all experts as my business partner in it. So we're, you know, we're going to figure this, this out together. And were you able to source, uh, was it an exchange deal or did you seek financing? We did. Yep. So uh, a local bank, actually, it happened to be the one who had the loan from before is going to be lending on it, uh, plus some additional dollars for us to do some rehab. Great. And uh, you had said it's underperforming uh, now. So you think that there's a good bit of spread in the ADR and, and you're able to drive. Great. That, that's yeah. that's awesome. Current owners are running it. Uh, are, they're not supposed to run it as an apartment building, but they're yeah. letting long-term tenants live in it because they got spooked over COVID. They're basically charging $18 a night. We know based off of all the data and a study that was done by the municipality that we'll be able to, to have above 50% occupancy at at least $70 a night. So that's um, we're, we're super excited to get this, this going. It'll be a couple of months till we finally take it down because rural areas are having trouble getting appraisals, but yeah, you, you take what you can take, you know? No, I mean, at, at 350,000 for 18 units. Yeah, I would say so. Right. Um, <laughs> so the interesting, we found uh, a, a place in Pennsylvania that was a, a similar story um, it was, we're finding there's a lot of opportunity with some of the mom and pop run places, uh, that have not really, uh, fully embraced technology and mm -hmm. haven't, uh, opened up that toolbox. Uh, there's still a good bit of opportunity out there. And I find it really interesting that you, you said you found the deal right there in MLS. Yep, I did. Well, I mean, as someone brought it to me, we tried to make a different partnership work. We walked away and then that deal came back to us. So there's something big to be said about kind of staying close to the rim. You know, when something kind of goes away, if it's meant to be, 
James, it'll come back to you. Yes. And this, this did. So. <laughs> There's a lot of value in, uh, in MLS. People think that you, you have to, and you look, you do, you said you kiss a lot of frogs and you do what you need to do, but we have found, we're even writing a software for it now because we have found that there's a, a, a lot of, of real estate that is overlooked right there in the MLS and, mm-hmm. and through the, you know, the, the tips and tricks in technology, we're able to find a few hacks that will help identify deals uh, for us without having to take out the old pad and pencil and, and underwrite them, you know, kind of one at a time. Right. Um, so our, your portfolio, is it, um, all, outside of the hotel on the horizon, mm-hmm. is it exclusively multifamilies? Do you have any commercial assets in there as well? Uh, all places people live. I still have two single family homes in the portfolio. I actually just sold almost everything I own in the state of Illinois because I don't trust the state of Illinois. Um, the taxes are bananas. The, <clears throat> I mean, if I look at teacher and police pension funds, Uh, like they're underfunded like crazy. And who are they going to come after the man in terms of property taxes? I actually, a single family investor, his whole play is to just not pay taxes. Like that is his whole play to just not pay taxes. And it's going to take three years for them to take back the property, but he gets the cash flow in the interim. The fact that the nature of Chicago has yielded a beneficial uh, like play to just not pay taxes is mind blowing to me. So it's multifamily predominantly in the state of Indiana, some in Wisconsin. So uh, for, for us, and we've touched on this in the past, I was going to ask how much of a factor does legislative risk play when you're uh, identifying a market that you want to be in? So legislative risk is, is up on that analysis pretty high for you. Yeah. I mean, one of the single family homes, the lady owes me the equivalent of a car and it's one unit. Do you know what I mean? The, the fact that I, I, I'm trying to do right by her, but like, I got to pay my bills, you know, and, and she, in my opinion is just kind of playing the game. So the chance to, you're totally right. The legislative risk, the, the landlord friendliness of these other States is, is why I voted with my dollars and moved my entire portfolio there. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times the the legislation that we see rolling out, it, it's well intended, but it is awful in the implementation. And what happens, unfortunately, is is the good guys like us, you know, folks like like Mandy and her team. And, and what we've unfortunately had to do is we've picked up and just located elsewhere because you just can't you can't sustain it. And I have some holdings in a small town in Pennsylvania. Uh, I have some holdings right here in New York City. Uh, I was talking to some friends and, and colleagues and investors. Um, in Pennsylvania, the gentleman was a nuisance tenant. He had threatened a neighbor. Mm. They were out in 30 days. Sheriff showed up. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And not that I was in any way trying to, to be a bully or, or harm anybody, but this is someone who was disrupting the quality of life. And, and mm-hmm. there were families and kids in this building. And within 30 days, they were out, you know, here in New York, that's several years, yeah, several year process. And the, the allure for New York has always been, it's the epicenter for jobs. And there's, there's just, the pain was well worth 
worth it because at the end of the day, the investment paid dividends, but we're unfortunately seeing quite a shift in, in our state and, and in our city. And, and we have a, a new leader here, uh, Mayor Adams, and we're hearing great things out of City Hall. And, and we hope that uh, the mayor is able to live up to those things because, gosh, it's, it's become really tough to, to stay that gritty New Yorker and, and kind of hang in there. Well, I, if you look at people voting with their feet, we're just talking about voting with our dollars, people voting with their feet after COVID. Uh, the, the state that lost the greatest amount of population was New York. Second state was Illinois. Third was California, right? So uh, if what you want is a long-term investment, you need jobs, you need people. And if we're losing jobs, if we're losing people, you know, there's a whole other set of reasons to, to not be investing in these states we're talking about. Yeah. So I feel like there's two waves to that. Uh, and this is all relevant, folks, as uh, in the investment world, because we're we're trying to identify those next emerging markets, right? Where where do we want to be? If we can, a little bit ahead of the curve. So, as Mandy pointed out earlier, you can sustain and you can operate at a, a forty or a fifty or a sixty percent occupancy rate, because those things sometimes are reality. Um, and we without getting too far into it, we're, we're finding that the initial wave were folks that could move. They had the financial wherewithal to say, you know what, I'm trading my digs in and I'm going to go choose a, a different life, a different lifestyle in a different place. The second wave that we're starting to see now are the employer-based um, moves where the employers are saying, Mm, I'm not sure we're going to have people back five days a week or three days a week, or in some cases at all. We're seeing some big companies decentralize, locate in the outer boroughs and locate out of state. And that next wave will be the companies pulling. The first were people leaving. And this next wave, I believe, will see companies pulling that employment base out to these other markets where, where they're going to put down roots. Well, and how many employees can work from afar, right? So what are we, you know, I have a friend of a friend was working in New York City downtown as a like designer, something, you know, computer based and was able to have that exact same job and move to like Kansas City and live like a king because she, you know, didn't need to live in her $3,000 a month apartment anymore. Yeah. So you're, you're keeping a close eye on, uh, emerging markets, if you will, or <laughs> markets that are presenting threats. Um, what about geographically from home base? Are mm -hmm. you are you investing um, where it's outside of arm's reach, where you, you, you don't have the ability to triage or deal with day-to-day -day boots on the ground? Have you gotten to a point where you're comfortable mm -hmm. in, in that type of environment? I operate better when I can completely hand off to someone and then just inspect what I expect. However, um, from my small, I teach a course on small multi specifically, and I feel like they're so small that they don't have eyes on them in the property management, the way the larger 50 plus units, let's say, has property management eyes on it. And it can get away from you real quickly. And uh, a six unit recently had a drug dealer in it. So I did have to engage. Uh, I'd like my assets to be uh, close enough that I can be down and back by dinner, <laughs> uh, but far enough away that I can't, I'm not driving by or, you know, triaging any toilet fixes. 
you know. So with that comes uh, infrastructure. It comes uh, having professionals that you rely upon. Could you spend a few minutes talking about uh, how do you do that? What comes first? Is it the investment that comes first and then you build a reliable team around it? Because uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're struggling with this now, candidly, right? We're investing more and more further away from home, unfortunately. And we're, we're struggling to, to find that place where you have enough critical mass to support the right management company, the right brokers, the right supers, right? All of those mm-hmm. different uh, elements that you need, but it's hard to do that without having the assets. So how, how does someone manage that? So I feel like that conversation is very different depending on the size of the asset that you're looking to, to take on, right? But I've done it both ways. I've done asset first and then property management, and I've done property management first and then asset management. And I can almost emphatically say that when I did property management first, when I vetted them in a deeper way, uh, in both the larger and the smaller stuff, I've had greater success. So I'll give you an example on the, the smaller stuff. Um, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but one of my happiest mistakes of my my first acquisition, that tiny little four unit, that thing I was scared to death of, I fe- I re- didn't realize it, but property managers in most states, you have to have a real estate license in order to manage property, right? Mm-hmm. So if I picked them first, then they're doubly incented. One, they get the buyer's commission. Two, they get the, the business of managing that asset once I do find it. So especially one of the things I train the, the people that I, I do the small multi-course with is look for the property manager first. And what I was doing was uh, student rentals. So I just looked for the group that had branded themselves to students. They'd already done all the heavy lifting. I found a, a small multi that made sense and plugged it into their machine and went from 450 a door to 820 a door within like two years. Wow. Wow. Okay. So do the homework vet Vet first is vetting to, to make sure that the market's right for you, right? That there's enough uh, of those metrics that, that make you feel, okay, this is an emerging market that I want to be a part of. Uh, mm-hmm. Next is, is find, and I, I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but gosh, does that make sense? You, you find someone that uh, is a property manager, which likely is going to require uh, real estate licensure, and they help to source the actual asset for you. Okay, so once you've done that, are you finding that there's an economy of scale? If, if you found a, a place that you're comfortable and you acquire a, a 30, a 40, a 50, 100, 150 unit building, are you trying to build around that, create kind of a, a, a critical mass? That's exactly what we're trying to do. So in the Indianapolis market, we've uh, partnered with a property management firm who they also manage their own assets. We're kind of going B-class space. They're kind of very strong C-class. So there's not a ton of competition in terms of triaging tenants. But what that means is that uh, they can move their person, one of their people. We don't have to employ her full time. We own her base. We own her help on uh, Tuesday and on Thursday and not for the entire year. So uh, as we continue to acquire more assets in that area, we'll have more and more specialized um, uh, property management. Just that one person will be our full-time employee moving forward. Got it. So uh, you're doing a a lot of self-ownership at this point. Have you uh, discussed or explored uh, syndication versus a fund? 
you know, I, I did, a, I closed on a syndication in November and uh, it was born of, I had, I, I talk all this B-class asset, long-term wealth. This is what I do. And so many friends and family wanted my help, but couldn't stroke a $500,000 check in order to, to be my partner in that deal. So I signed on to, to work with the syndication that met all of my criteria, the B-class asset, the emerging market of, it's so funny to think emerging market and think like Louisville. You, you think like Libya is an emerging market, you know? Anyway, so um, I, uh, I really kind of only did that to help out um, my friends and family that had been asking. But in terms of, you know, that ethos of I want to, I want super long-term debt. I, I want to like own for the long term. I don't want to be a flipper of multifamily, which in my opinion, that's what a three-year hold is. I'm the flipper of single family rather than the buy and hold. And if I can't take advantage of that long-term uh, locked in low rate, which is the thing we have going for us right now. Like, you know, I hear so many people say we're so overheated. Yeah, you're right. We're super hot right now, but what do we have going for us? These super, super low uh, rents. And if you're talking value add right now, one more thing that I think that you might find interesting, pattern is, you know, it's NOI divided by cap equals my value, right? So if I'm buying it a four and I'm talking about this being a, a value add property and I have to sell it at a five, if I log small numbers, if I go from a four to a five, I've increased that denominator by 25% law of small numbers, right? Now I have to increase that numerator, my NOI by 25% just to keep up with the value. So I have the willies for short-term holds right now. So the the ethos of being able to communicate a long-term hold with just a couple of partners is significantly easier than with the syndication. This has been just a, an amazing wealth of information for me and, and, and for the audience. You, you do a lot of work on the, the women's leadership side. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I, you know, I, I, this is a boys club. Commercial real estate is a boys club, right? So I, I was a trader. I was on the floor of the board of trade. I was a college athlete. Like all of the, I do all of these things that I guess only boys want to do. So I feel like, you know, as I've gotten older, I, I just, I want more and more women to know that they've got a shot at doing these things if they want to. So um, I kind of banded arms with some friends who were doing multifamily investing about, you know, a couple years ago. And we started a group called Aspiring Women Achieving More, which is just kind of a place to troubleshoot problems, to get accountability. And it's, it's basically all free stuff. It's all free resources of women, you know, trying to help other women out on this journey, because I firmly believe you're given these two arms for a reason. One, to pull your yourself up and want to, to pull other people up. And uh, we want to provide a platform to, to help pull other people up who are getting started on commercial real estate journeys. That, that's amazing. Uh, Mandy, what's the, the best way for folks to find you? Sure. MandyMcAllister.com. Uh, I've got a blog with a bunch of um, like book recommendations and stuff that I'll give you the link to. It also has all the social handles for me and for aspiring women and Good Fortune Capital, which is my investing arm. Uh, amazing. She's the Mindset Ninja, folks, Mandy McAllister. Mandy, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. This was a real treat. As always, everybody out there, please stay safe.